The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. DJ, it's time to celebrate. We are officially in Murderer's Row. We're finally at the AFC West. We've been waiting for this for so long. Big reason why we're doing the Western Divisions last is because, really no other way to put it, they're fucking insane. So uh, we're doing AFC West, then we're doing NFC West to kind of close out this whole series next week. Uh, I gave myself an extra generous pour of Oban 14 tonight to celebrate. I I have looked forward to this division from the very beginning. And I've looked forward to talking about this team, Denver, from the very beginning. Because, I mean, talk about a one-off-season leap. <laughs> the Broncos that we remember from seven months ago now to the Broncos that we see today as training camps open on the day that we record this. It's both the same team and a completely different team. And we thought they were okay last year. This year, they are built to uh, potentially obliterate everybody in their path. So uh, I'm super stoked to talk about them. They have as good of a chance as anyone of making a run here. And uh, I think it's going to be fun. Good show. It's going to be great. Make no mistake. It's time to celebrate. We are in our final region, the West, our second to last division. And we've been talking about the Broncos for two years. We've been saying, man, if they get a quarterback, look out. Yeah. Oban's mm. one of my favorites. I haven't had Oban in so long. It's God. so good. We've mm. been saying that, look, give Denver a trigger man, and they're going to be very, very scary. We said that two years ago. Last year, we were like, man, if they can get the quarterback position figured out, this team is really good on both sides of the ball. And guess what? They figured out that issue. So, But even larger than that, they did that, and it sort of kicked off the fireworks for the entire division, and it became this, like, two-and-a-half to three-week-long arms race where it was like somebody else did something else? Are you serious? And Chargers and Khalil Mack and Russell Wilson and, like, Chiefs, and it just kept going. The Raiders get Devontae Adams, and it's like, can't stop already. This is the kaiju division. This is the giant monsters rampaging through cities. The AFC West is nuts. And so to celebrate, uh, I brought on a local beer. This is Elliott Bay Brewing's Baja Lager. Uh, mm. And it is delicious uh, all by itself. But as you can with any clear Mexican-style lager, 
you can soup it up with a little Bacardi Limon. So that is a diver down in a can. In a can? How do you do it in a can? Hey, skills, buddy. Skills. That <laughs> shouldn't be possible, but okay. It's so possible, and it's <laughs> lovely and delicious. So Elliott Bay Brewing, right up the road for me, right by SeaTac Airport. Um, fantastic little brew pub. They make uh, six packs to go as well. They brew on site. And great beers all around, but I saw that they've added this Baja Lager since the last time I was there. So I was like, I know exactly what I'm going to do with that. Tried <gasps> one unmodified and then modified. What? I made a mistake. I have a perfectly good bottle of Breckenridge bourbon right up there in my cabinet. Oh, you coulda, you coulda. Oh, God. We're doing a Broncos episode. I'm not drinking Colorado whiskey. I feel terrible. Well, it's I mean. It's great bourbon, by the way. Yeah, great bourbon, but really, you got Oban 14 in your glass. It's not a thing to complain about. And it kind of feels, the AFC West, honestly, that's a decent segue because the AFC West kind of feels like that. Well, I've got great bourbon over here. Yeah, but you got Oban 14 over here, and you got this <laughs> over there, and it's all great. It's all really good. So it's going to be a fun week. Well, we're going to start off today's show, uh, as we do every other show, with a little 2021 recap. And uh, I, I can't recall that many uh, 2021 recaps that have so little bearing on what happens this year because, <laughs> I mean, everything has changed <laughs> since since this happened. But uh, we still got to do it. We still got to tell you the story of how this team got to where they are today. They went 7-10 and 10 last year. They were last in the division, obviously, 4-5 and five at home, 3-5 and five on the road. Very mediocre uh, in... December to kind of close things out, finished one and four. They were competing for a wild card spot somehow <laughs> against all odds uh, up until a little over halfway through the year. Like they were right there. The defense was playing great. Say what you want about Vic Fangio, but he, he can really coach defense. So they were hanging in a lot of games and I think they were, you know, outperforming even maybe expectations that some people had for them. But everything just kind of caught up to them in December. You know, the offense never really got going. Last year, it was very much a defensive team and then just hoping that the running game, you know, with Javonta and, and Melgore would, would kind of carry the rock for them. And it, it can work. It can absolutely work. But you still need elevated quarterback play to complement that. And they just – they never really got it. Um you know, it's not to say over the last couple of years, you know, we've seen some some adequate performances from Drew Locke. We saw some adequate performances from from Teddy even, but it was just never enough, especially in that division where you have all these superhero quarterbacks. It was just never quite enough. The defense was always pulling way more than their fair share of the weight. And so that led to this offseason where we go from defensive coach and defensive culture to offensive coach and offensive culture and mediocre quarterback play to potentially hall of fame level quarterback play. So, uh, obviously a massive transition feels somewhat similar to the transition that we saw almost a decade ago, where you go from uh, mediocre quarterback play to Peyton Manning gift wrapped uh, gift wrapped on their front porch one year. And then they go to the super bowl like two years later. So, uh, it's, a uh, <laughs> It's kind of funny how time is a flat circle sometimes. But, yeah, last year's team is – there's a lot of familiar faces, but it's so, so different at the same time and uh, different in a good way, I should say. It's the change that they've needed. Like I said, we've been talking about it for two years. Man, they really need a quarterback. They're getting to the point where they're loading up around, they're building offensive line. We talked about skill positions. 
how much we wanted some of those skill position players to be able to play with uh, a high-level quarterback because we really believe in them, and this is it. Like, you can't – there are very few times in a franchise's history, Denver, as you said, has done it, you know, twice now in the last 15 years. That's extremely rare. Some franchises have never done it, where you import a ready-made – quarterback that's been to the Super Bowl and is capable of taking a team back there again give up a lot to do it but needed to it was the one lever they needed to throw to see how far they can take this thing in the modern NFL and they did it and they did it incredibly this isn't a well we hope he develops kind of a thing like this is Russell Wilson he's been doing it for over a decade at a very high level and if this doesn't happen for whatever reason, you're sort of out of excuses on the offensive side. You can't really point at any unit on the offensive side and say, well, it wasn't really good enough. Eh, not not true. It is really funny how how similar the 2021 Broncos story was to the 2011 Broncos. Because remember back then it was also a defensive team and you had whole bunch of hall of famers and future hall of famers like that was von miller's rookie year um chris harris's rookie year you had brian dawkins elvis Dumerville, champ bailey uh like there that was a loaded defense and then you had willis mcgahee as your lead back who had a wonderful year that year no sean was still there it was it was so remarkably similar and the quarterback situation was tim tebow and kyle orton plug peyton in not too long after that now we're record-breaking offense and we're going to Super Bowls. and It's just funny how how the same formula has worked for the same franchise yeah, <laughs> literally got, twice in a decade. You got Demarius Thomas on that team, right, as the big Yeah, his second year. Court Sutton on this team. Like, There's a lot of things that are similar. And if Broncos fans really want to take hope early in the episode here, if you haven't already, I mean. You've been partying for a couple of months now. But Peyton was at the end of his string. He couldn't really move. He was never super mobile, but he really couldn't move. And his arm was done when he got to Denver. He had about half, three-quarters of a good season, fell off pretty hard at the end of the first one. And the year after that, he was shot-putting the ball. Well, after the record-breaking. He had the record-breaking year where he was still fine, and then literally after that season is it was done right and he was getting away with it on smarts and guile because he is one of the smartest quarterbacks of all time and he knew what he was doing with the ball before he ever snapped it and he was shot putting it but it was still getting there on time and on target because he knew when to launch it with what he had left russ is not at all in that particular shape like russ should not be running 15 times a game but he's still very mobile bootlegs rollouts when he has to scramble for six or eight yards you're gonna get it his arm is still very strong uh, we saw it last year in person week two he can get the ball down the field with zip to just about any level is he gonna go as deep as a couple of well any of the other three quarterbacks in this division which is a crazy thing to say uh in a different way russ throws a moon ball but he can get it to all these players very efficiently so this this offense is primed to absolutely go off uh let's talk about the power structure by the way that has built this roster to what it is over the last seven months or so george payton year two at gm 
I would already say he's a successful GM based on what he's done so far. <laughs> he's done a fantastic job, especially pulling off that Russ trade. I know he gave up a lot of assets for it, but it was worth it. Uh, Nathaniel Hackett in year one at head coach, bringing him bringing him in, excuse me, to replace the departed Vic Fangio. Uh, Justin, is it Otten or Uten? He oh. was the tight ends coach. Yeah, in Green it Bay. says nice. on there. It actually says on their web page. Hang on, I should have written that down for you. That's my fault. Um, Not that I know the pronunciation of every tight ends coach in the league, but now he's the offensive coordinator, so I feel like I should. I'm gonna go with Outen. <laughs> I don't know. Outen is that what we're going uh, with? Outen, Outen. Uh, we'll we'll apologize to Justin and and learn his name very quickly. And he's a Syracuse guy. I feel terrible. Yeah, it's your neck that was. You should know this thing. I should. I should. Uh, but so, like I said, he was the tight ends coach in Green Bay, is now the offensive coordinator in Denver. Ajiro Avero, he is, ironically, a longtime lieutenant of Vic Fangio, coached under him in San Francisco, then spent time in Green Bay, then spent time with the Rams under Brandon Staley, who's another Vic Fangio disciple. Presumably will run a lot of the same stuff that Vic was running which is probably why they brought him in because he speaks the language. They don't really need to install a whole lot uh, because he can just kind of pick up where Vic left off. I mean, the defense was not the problem last year, so they don't need to change anything. So I think Averro, uh, you know, with his his credentials as a Vic Fangio lieutenant could very easily pick up where he left off and be just fine. And then uh, Dwayne Stooks, year one at special teams coordinator. Uh, the rare year one special teams yeah. coach <laughs> so far this series. Yeah, that's the it's the one and only. Uh, it's not the one and only. There's a few, but uh, we've we've been harping on uh, special teams coordinators and how if you have a good one, you keep them throughout this series. And I feel like I'd be remiss if we didn't mention Kelly Klein. So Kelly Klein is the executive director of football operations and the special advisor to the general manager. So she is uh, George Payton's right hand person. They're one of the highest ranking female personnel executives in the league, um, maybe mm. the highest ranking personnel executive in the league, uh, came from the Minnesota organization, followed him from the Vikings. Uh, it is a promotion for her, and she, by all accounts, is completely kick-ass and has been for a very long time. So Broncos are very happy to get her. It's not listed here because we don't list assistant GMs, but she's basically the assistant GM in Denver and uh, has a long track record of outperforming her position. So if you were taking odds on who the first female GM in the NFL might be, Kelly Klein would be a uh, probably pretty close to even odds. You wouldn't get you wouldn't get really good odds because it's it's a real legitimate chance that if that happens, she'll be the one. I mean, if you're already assistant GM, it's probably only a matter of time at some point. Yeah. Um, by the way, I do want to since we're on the subject of coaches before we get to the notable assistant coaches. I want to talk a little bit about the Nathaniel Hackett system and how that's going to play with Russ. There's been a lot of discussion this year of, oh, are they just going to do what, um, you know, Matt LaFleur does? Because, you know, they have Clint Kubiak, who's Gary's son, who we're going to talk about in a second. So it's like, is it going to be all the wide zone stuff and, you know, the 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 motion at the snap and you're doing all the two back stuff and the 12 personnel stuff and that we see from the general quote-unquote Shanahan tree, which in itself is 
10 different branches that they all run different stuff. You know, are we going to see that style of offense? And there's been a lot of discussion about that. At this point in Russell's career, you run the Russell Wilson offense, which is shotgun, not empty all the time, but they do like to spread things out in order to keep the defense from being so condensed because Russell likes when things are spread out so he can read things before the snap. You're going to be emphasizing passes outside the uh, outside the hashes. When you look at uh, routes targeted and the percentages, um, I remember I, I, I found this stat not too long ago. When you look at what Wilson prioritized, he's predominantly targeting receivers outside those hashes. 75% of his targets are to outside receivers because he historically doesn't prefer working the middle of the field, whether that's a vision thing or, you know, how deep he likes to drop in the pocket. You, you could, that's a whole different topic, but he likes to target outside receivers more than anything. For comparison, Tom Brady only targets outside receivers about 55% of the time and the league average is 53%. So he's a little over 20% over the NFL average in terms of targeting outside receivers versus inside receivers and inline tight ends. That to me means that regardless of whatever Nathaniel Hackett has run in the past and regardless of whatever Clint Kubiak has run in the past, doesn't really matter how much they want to work the middle of the field (laughs) because that's not what Russ is going to do. So I think inevitably they're going to run the Russell Wilson offense, which is if we are in a like absolutely guaranteed passing situation, it's shotgun. We're spreading things out. Russell's going to look at things before the snap. There's going to be some motion so we can figure out what's going on. And then he's going to make a call at the line and get into whatever he wants to get into. If they're under center, it is one of two things. They are either running, which is the majority of the time, historically with Russell Wilson, when he's under center, he's running the ball, or it's a deep shot off play action. Not any type of deep shot, though. (laughs) It's got to be a deep middle shot, or it's a moon ball down the boundary. That's about it. If it's a crossing route, maybe you boot him out a little bit, but they don't. he typically didn't boot that much in Seattle, not as much as you would expect. Like, he was good at it, but they didn't do it as much and so I think that the offense will be inevitably more predictable than people think because Russell Wilson no matter who his offensive coordinator has been historically they inevitably start running the same stuff that Russell is good at however (laughs) there is so much talent in Denver they're going to be able to run the ball whether or not it's telegraphed with Russell being under center or not, because Javante and, and all them are great. The offensive line is talented. Russell is accurate down the field. It doesn't matter how predictable they're going to be because through sheer force of will, they will out-talent virtually everybody they play against because that is what Russell Wilson has done the majority of his career. It is not a new thing that he doesn't work the middle of the field. People know he's not going to work the middle of the field. Guess what? he's still dropping bombs down the field and still completing them because that's what Russell Wilson does. So whatever preconceived notions you have about the type of offense they're going to run and what Nathaniel Hackett did in Green Bay, don't worry about that. They're not doing that shit. They're doing what Russell Wilson does, which is under center runs, deep shots off play action under center, and then when shit really hits the fan, we're going empty, we're going shotgun, and Russell's going to do whatever he's going to do with the line of scrimmage. That is the new Broncos offense. Yeah, prayers up to anybody in the Denver Broncos organization that runs middle crossing hook or button routes. 
Yeah, oh, I, I fully expect Jerry Judy to go to some gulag in Siberia. Yeah. Like if they expect him to get 80 catches this year, being a slot receiver that's working choice routes over the middle. Sorry, <laughs> that's not happening. Yeah. It's never happened with Russell. You're going to see ever. a lot of corners outside shading Jerry Judy because if they can <laughs> yeah. keep him from turning to the outside, they can literally let him go to the Bermuda Triangle and nothing's going to happen. Yeah. Like they're going to be fine. It's like another defender. It's like a boundary defender using the sideline as another defender. Literally, nickelbacks are going to line up either square or shaded with their butt to the boundary and be like, "Go ahead." Like I'm not letting you go this way. Cut to the inside. I dare you. They'll be kind of like quartered out, butt to the sideline, couple steps deep. Look, if you're going deep, I'm going to run with you. But if you cut anything off to the inside, I. I could literally tie my hands behind my back or put them in the hand warmer because we're in Denver and you're still not going to get a completion. So I think that's truer than people think. If you don't look up the heat map for Russell Wilson's passing chart for his entire career, heat maps famously have red in the hot areas, blue in the cold areas, the entire middle of the field out to again, about 15 yards in a triangle shape is dark blue, Um, almost a Seahawks blue for Russell Wilson. He does not. (laughs) He does not throw there very often. But again, he's still been as effective as he's been, which is very, very effective with everybody knowing that for a long time now. It's not some late career turn. This has been the thing, and people still can't stop it. So here we go. One thing really quick. Today's episode is sponsored by Upside. For every purchase you make on gas, groceries, or even dining out, all of which are obviously incredibly expensive these days, Upside will help you earn cash back on those purchases. In particular for me, I go all the way from the ass end of Orange County out to LA at least once a week, and I'm about to be driving even more than that soon because of all the travel to training camps and games that I'm doing. So the cash back on gas in particular is very valuable to me, just like I'm sure it would be valuable to a lot of you as well. On the app, all you have to do is claim an offer for whatever you're buying on Upside, check in at the business, pay as you normally do with your credit or debit card, and then you get cash back. It's very easy to do, so if you want to try out Upside for yourself just to make your purchases hurt as little as humanly possible these days, you can use promo code BOOTLEG and get $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more. Again, that is promo code BOOTLEG for $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of at least $10. Thank you again to Upside for sponsoring today's show. And with that, let's get back to it. Which then does bring us to notable assistant coaches, Clint Kubiak. Everything he's ever done his entire career has been very different than what Russell Wilson has done historically. So as the pass game coordinator, how is he going to be adjusting? That's, I think, one of the biggest storylines for this team that honestly we won't know the answer to until halfway through the year going to be a fascinating mesh to watch between um, the coaching staff, which is largely new, uh, you know, and Russell, uh, I was going to say the rest of the players that are new, but on offense, a lot of returning starters, um, defense, more shift between returners and folks they brought in, but it's really about Russell and how Russell meshes with the coaches that are going to be directly affecting the game plans and his teammates. I think Typically, Russell Wilson throughout his Seahawks tenure has been an excellent teammate and has meshed very well with the players that he's throwing the ball to or handing the ball off to. Some Seahawks fans will take issue with that statement. I understand. I get it. But overall, we're speaking in larger generalities here. So on offense, notable coaches, Clint Kubiak, 
pass game coordinator and QB coach, 12 years of NFL coach or 12 years of coaching experience, eight years in the NFL. He is, he played defensive back at Colorado state himself. And of course he's the son of longtime coach and former Broncos head coach, Gary Kubiak, Tyrone Wheatley running back coach. Those who've watched football for a little while will recognize that name. Tyrone Wheatley's been coaching for 15 years. I realize that might hurt a little bit. <laughs> coaching for 15 years. Four in the NFL, coaching running backs. He's a former Big Ten Offensive Player of the Year and a first-round draft pick. He was an NFL running back with the Giants and the Raiders. Jake Moreland is the tight end coach in Denver. Former NFL tight end himself with the Jets and Browns. And then Ben Steele is the assistant offensive line coach, and he is a former NFL and NFL Europe offensive lineman with the Packers and the Frankfurt Galaxy. So good mix of players on the offensive side uh, and good mix of, like you said, experience in the system that Nathaniel Hackett brings from his previous stops. We'll see how much that meshes with, as you coined it, the Russell Wilson offense, which is a truism at this point. On defense and special teams, Got to start with Dom Capers, senior defensive assistant. Again, that vague title. 48 years of coaching experience. That's not a typo, folks. 48 years, almost five decades of coaching experience. 35 years with 10 different total NFL teams. And he's served, this is the one that kills me, he served as the head coach or the defensive coordinator for six of those clubs over 24 years. So he's been either an HC or a DC for a quarter century, 24 years. That alone would be one of the most, if not the most, experienced person on an NFL staff. Right behind him is Bill Kohler, the defensive See, his title is defensive slash special projects. Again, we got two guys who are just random defensive assassins who we can put wherever we want to with real vague <laughs> titles. Bill Kohler is a legend, and I don't throw that word around lightly. 37 years of coaching experience, including the last 34 coaching defensive line in the NFL. Not just in the NFL, not other position groups, not the coaching defensive line in the NFL for the last 34 years. You don't find coaches like that that have specialized in one position and have been there 34, 35 years. It just, it isn't a thing. Kohler, absolute legend. The list of players that he has worked with, taken to Pro Bowls, made all pros. Too long to list. The episode would be an hour and 45 minutes if we listed all those folks. So we just didn't. Between Capers and Kohler, you're talking about 48 and 37 years of experience. Just those two guys. Whew, buddy, that's that's a lot of time. Also want to list Marcus Dixon, the defensive line coach, former NFL player with the Cowboys and Jets. But boy, it's a tough act to follow behind Capers and Kohler. You know what's interesting about this staff? And it just... I, I want to illustrate the point that everybody in NFL coaching circles knows everybody <laughs> and they all have connections. So it was either a couple months or no, probably about a year after Clint Kubiak graduated high school. Uh, Dom Capers was replaced as the head coach of the Texans by Gary Kubiak, Clint's father, who then hired a couple of years later, Bill Kohler to be his assistant head coach and defensive line coach. Oh, and then after Gary left the Texans, <laughs> went went to Denver, where he yeah. was the offensive coordinator previously, when Clint was born, and won a Super Bowl there. So it's, it's just funny how everything's connected in the yeah. NFL. There are 
so many multiple touch points throughout a staff. And as we talk about this division, pay attention to this section because there are some fun ones on other teams. Uh, they're top of mind because I just wrote the Raiders one today. And the amount of folks on that staff that have a connection to a central point is staggering. I bet. Everybody knows everybody. Yeah. Like you, you could do uh, the, the Kevin Bacon game. You could do six degrees to Josh McDaniels and probably connect yourself to every coach that's ever been in the league at this point. <laughs> yeah, I don't disagree. Uh, all right, let's look at uh, the free agency section. Uh, and free agency losses, quite frankly, most of them are not key players. You know, Bryce Callahan in the past has been a very good nickel, but he struggled with injury. Last year, he got hurt halfway through the year. Now he's with the Chargers because, of course, he is. Um, you know, Bobby Massey was let go. Bobby Massey hasn't has not necessarily been a quality option at right tackle for – uh, quite some time, in my opinion. Uh, you know, Shamar, Shamar Stephan's gone. Teddy Bridgewater is now in Miami, backing up Tua. Um, Kenny Young is gone. But the, the, the main ones we're going to be highlighting here were all part of the Russell Wilson trade. So I figure we could just talk about the Russell Wilson trade now um, because it's all kind of interconnected. Shelby Harris was sent on a trade or sent in the trade to Seattle. Noah Fant was sent in that trade to Seattle. And, of course, Drew Locke, as well as two firsts, two seconds, a fifth rounder as well. And, of course, they got back Russell and a fourth round pick. It does seem like a high price. I get that because Shelby Harris is a quality interior player. And they are they were thinner before the draft on the interior than, than you would think. Uh, Noah Fant, super high upside tight end. And then Drew Locke is he's most likely a backup quarterback in the league. But when you throw them in with the large amount of picks, relatively speaking, it was a lot to give up for a quarterback. And yet it still wasn't enough for what Russell Wilson is even worth to this team. I still think that Denver got the better end of the deal because, I'm sorry, if you have a first ballot Hall of Fame quarterback still in his prime, it almost doesn't even matter what price you pay. It's worth it. And to be quite honest, I thought it would be for even more than what Denver ended up needing to pay. So, again, not that the Seahawks got fleeced. I mean, they got some pretty good players out of it. Like, they got Charles Cross and Boye Mafe out of that trade just this year, and we both really liked them. But I still think that because of the quality of player that Russell Wilson is, they could have asked for literally anything from Denver and it would have been acceptable. So all in all, pretty positive trade for the Broncos. Because of what it means, I agree with you. It means everything, and we've said that for a couple of years. Again, we've been banging that drum. Maybe we were ahead of the curve. I don't think so. They were trying a couple of years ago. We know that. They tried really hard last year and had to basically just keep their powder dry and hang out because they didn't get it done. And they were going to make another run. They were damned and determined to do this. They end up doing it. The bottom line that everybody started with before Russell Wilson moved was three firsts. It's going to be three firsts, going to be three firsts, because that's the maximum number of firsts that you can trade. You can only trade firsts out for three years. They only ended up giving up two. Now, the player I want to talk about is Shelby Harris, interestingly enough, because Noah Fant, 
everything you said. He is a good, young, ascending offensive threat. And you're going to have to give up something that's a little bit painful if you're trying to get something you really want. And that's the case here. They needed a quarterback, and they said, Noah Fant. They were like, man, we really like him. He's starting to develop the way we wanted him to when we drafted him, or maybe even more so. Uh, Okay, like we'll do it because we have other people we can replace him with because of the way we've drafted but we'll give you that but Shelby Harris is the one that gets talked about I think the least everybody talked about Drew Locke because it was a quarterback for quarterback swap not the same thing of course but for the last three months we've been talking about oh is Drew Locke going to start for the Seahawks or is it going to be Geno and now maybe it's going to be Jimmy G and, and we'll see how that works but nobody's talking about Shelby Harris and Shelby Harris is a quality interior defensive lineman Probably nobody's talking about Shelby Harris because he's an interior defensive lineman, but not a throwaway in this trade. He is somebody that, uh, especially the new defensive coordinator in Seattle, Clint Hurt, knows how to use. He is going to take Shelby Harris, and I wouldn't be surprised if he asked for Shelby Harris and said, can we get that guy? Because we need one of those to rotate in our system with Puna and everybody else. So they get a bunch back, and of course, as you said, they already pulled two players this year they're going to pull a couple more players next year three more players next year it's it balances out the Seahawks needed to do this if you've been paying attention to the Seahawks I realize you might not as a Broncos fan um, now that they're not even in the same conference but this has been brewing in Seattle for a couple of years at least a couple of years that we know about it had to happen and Seattle got the best amount they could and Denver got what they did desperately needed which was quarterback play that they're not going to have to worry about to leverage all of these offensive weapons all around the offense and there's probably not a better time to talk about it than now if you look at this offense at receiver Cortland Sutton and Jerry Judy loaded offensive line Garrett Bowles Dalton Risner Lloyd Cushenberry Quinn Miners and you know Billy Turner or Tom Compton whoever ends up starting a right tackle like that's an above average NFL line. Some of those guys are very, very talented. Bulls in particular and Miners, who they got last year, looks like he's going to continue his ascension. You know, tight end, we just talked about Albert Fant going, well, you've got, or sorry, Noah Fant going, you've got Albert O there. Obviously, Russell is the keystone piece. And then one of the best one two combinations at running back in Javante and Melvin Gordon. Like, this offense top to bottom there are no excuses I said that at the top and I mean it there there's some depth behind a bunch of those spots but first run starters lining them up week one plug Russell Wilson into that no defensive coordinator is going to be really happy about that because there are very few sort of cracks to attack in that offense and you're going to have to cover the whole field he's going to make you of course except the middle between the hashes but (laughs) other than that it's going to be a difficult offense to contend with, and Russell makes it so. There were a lot of defensive coordinators for the last two years looking at that offense saying the same thing that we were saying. Man, if they had, you know, if Aaron Rodgers was there because they'd talked about trading for him or, you know, Derek Carr had been available, like, like, man, look out. Like, that would be a dangerous offense. And now with Russell, they're like, crap, it happened. Now I do have to defend the entire field. Bummer. So really really talented offense and now i mean keep in mind the defense should still be good too it's not like that's going anywhere it's still assuming going to be roughly the same system or at least the same language 
with a play caller that has a similar philosophy. Obviously, there's going to be differences from coach to coach, but I mean, Coach Averro got his start under Big Fangio in San Francisco with that, you know, uh, if you remember the that linebacking core in 2012-2013, he was with that elite Niners defense as an assistant. So, I, I can't imagine the defense is going to change that much. And really, the only substantive personnel differences are Callahan only played half of last year anyway. And then Kyle Fuller, who eh, let's be honest, had a down year in Denver. And now he's, he's, uh, he's in Baltimore, but for the most part, it's the same defense. So the defense was not the issue last year. They were already great. And there was the, uh, the general mentality of like, okay, well we slowed down Mahomes, We slowed down Herbert. We slowed down Carr. We just couldn't outscore them. <laughs> now you can slow them down and outscore them. So I, I can't imagine that that the Broncos are, are not going to be competitive in this division. Like, if anything, they should be arguably front runners in this division because all the good is still good and all the bad just got better. Which then, by the way, does bring me to their retentions because there were some key players that they did keep in the fold. Um, nothing major major but melvin gordon you know keeping him around at two and a half million to just kind of be that stable veteran behind assuming behind javanta in the running back room i I think gordon is firmly the number two at this point javanta's just at this stage of their careers javanta's just more explosive more powerful more everything and and melvin i think can can be that veteran number two for you kareem jackson is somehow still going at 34 years old and he's always been one of my favorite safeties in the league started out at corner in houston when ironically clint's dad gary drafted him in 2010 um and then he became one of the best nickels in the league because he was a great tackler maybe the best tackler on the team in those early 2010s texans defenses under wade um, and then eventually made the transition that Texans fans were hoping for for years where he just converted to safety full-time in Denver and was immediately awesome at it. So he's still going, extended his career into the mid-30s, which for a DB is not common, but for somebody who tackles like him and is as smart as him, he's a very good veteran safety. Graham Glasgow, I, I expect, will be a swing guard for them. Maybe he pushes... Dalton or Quinn for one of the starting jobs, but I I think he's probably going to be a swing. Uh, Josie Jewell, they retained at five and a half million. I think he's okay as a starting inside <laughs> linebacker. Like they they did bring in Singleton to compete with him. I think he does certain things really well, but I do think as a physical talent, he's never going to be you know a top twenty linebacker in the league. You know, like he'll, he'll be fine. He's fine. He's fine. he's he's five and a half million. Five and a half million is what you pay for a fine, fine inside linebacker. linebacker. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, Malik Reed, they also retained. Played almost seventy percent of the snaps for them last year, which obviously they sustained some injuries in their edge rotation, which is why he did play so many snaps. But he was again fine, which for two and a half million, that's what you pay a fine edge these days. I'm totally okay with that deal. I want to talk about Reed and yes he played you know damn near 70 percent of the snaps 67.8 percent of the snaps and it was because of the injury they sustained at the edge position but I liked Reed coming out of Nevada and I think he's a key retention especially because of that sub two and a half million dollar contract 
you get a backup rotational edge for sub two and a half million who showed some flashes is he a guy you want to plug in as your number one and put him against the best tackles in the league every week no he's not to that level yet can he come in for 30 35 snaps significantly less than he played last year assuming that their edges come back healthy and be a really good rotational player at under two and a half million at a prime spot like that's a that's an under the radar like yep that was a good retention i'm glad they were able to do that for two and a half million the rest of it really feels like core stuff melvin gordon kareem jackson graham glasgow josie jewel too like they believe in jewel in that system you and i are like eh you know, it feels a little bit like the Browns defense a couple of years ago before they drafted JOK. We were like, mm-hmm. man, it's really good. But the, it's like, you know, they're surviving, but they're not dynamic. Yeah, they don't really have anybody at inside linebacker. And I wouldn't be surprised if they prioritize that and maybe a you know third round pick next year and grab somebody that slips and get a, a more athletic, rangy pass coverage inside linebacker to give them some more flexibility in their defensive calls. But for now... They believe in Josie Jewell, and he gets it done for what they need him to do in that defense. And, yeah, you know, five and a half, maybe a little rich for his skill set, but for the overall position, that's completely middle-of-the-road money for a starting middle inside linebacker. Obviously, the starting edges are going to be Chubb and and Randy Gregory, who we'll get to in a second, but that second and third wave is where Malik Reed comes in. Who do you think gets more snaps, Jonathan Cooper or Malik Reed? Oh, because uh, you know I'm yeah. I'm a massive. John I know Cooper you're fan. a massive Cooper fan. I it's it's interesting because they've now moved Baron Browning into that role as well, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm a big Baron Browning fan. If you followed our draft coverage, you know that Brett was a huge Jonathan Cooper fan. I liked Jonathan Cooper. He loved him. I loved Baron Browning. He liked him. So we have sort of guys on opposite sides of that. Uh, outside linebacker debate in Denver who are sort of putting our money behind. But those guys don't even have to get the majority of the snaps, which is, again, the depth in that defense because somebody we're going to talk about that they drafted this year, Nick Benito from Oklahoma, was a guy I really liked. And so Benito and Reed as your backups to your starters who are very, very good is nice. And then to have the luxury of you know Cooper – and Browning behind those guys, you're legitimately running five or six deep. That's that's a very nice thing. And it's a position that Vic prioritized, so it's not surprising that they've built depth in that position. But in terms of like who they've picked up from a player personnel standpoint, I would take both the starters and the depth from the Broncos at those outside linebacker positions more than probably two-thirds of the teams in the league. Now that you bring up Benito, just as a quick aside – you look at Browning, Benito, Malik Reed. Um, let's see, I think what's Randy Gregory way two forty two. Four of their top six in their edge rotation are essentially two forty or less. Yeah, it's a pretty light outside yep. linebacker group. Which is at least these days, you look at a lot of the the defenses around the league. You're seeing these big, just hulking outside line. Like uh, in Green Bay, it seems like every outside linebacker they have is like two sixty five plus. Yeah. It's interesting to me that Denver is lighter in that position group than most. I mean, they're still awesome, but it's just kind of a different than different than the trends that we see around the league these days. Not to yeah, get they want them. Too they want them mobile. They want jet fighters. They don't want yeah. ground attack planes. They want they want guys that can absolutely fly. And Benito's really interesting. We'll talk about him when we get to the draft. And his versatility was one of the things that set him apart 
in this class from other players that played quote unquote his position his ability to go forwards and backwards or forward backwards and sideways was far greater than a lot of people that he was lumped in with and if you really wanted that like Denver does in their defense you couldn't just pick anybody in this year's draft and Benito was right up near the top of that list because his range as a whatever you call it strong side linebacker Denver calls a strong side linebacker edge outside rusher you name it like Benito's flexibility to be all over the field in that position, which does stem from him not being one of those 270 pounders, was near tops in the class. And I think that sort of struck the apple of Denver's eye, and they were like, nope, that's that's a guy we want to put in our rotation. Him and Browning both had that background of <laughs> both being an off-ball linebacker and an edge. So I'm, it's, you can I'm kind never going to forget stuff. Baron Browning being slotted out wide when uh, Penn State flexed out Pat Fryermuth and played mm-hmm. him at X on the goal line. It was from like the 15-yard line, and they literally did a clear out. They had an inline tight end. They flexed out Pat Fryermuth one-on-one, and the guy that Ohio State sent out to cover him was Baron Browning, and Baron Browning covered him like a corner. And it was like, okay, not everybody can do that at his size. <laughs> no, not when you're – 240 um all right third party additions this was also full of a lot of money and a lot of assets being spent you could tell that denver approached this offseason of like money and picks are a a fictional concept we are throwing everything into this year they don't give a shit dj jones for 10 million he's a really underrated part of that 49ers uh, interior rotation last year really really good player I love Shelby Harris. Uh, DJ Jones is better, in my opinion. So spending $10 million to get him was awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kwan Williams should be competing with Damari Mathis for the starting slot role, I would imagine. Williams will probably win it because he's the mm-hmm. veteran, but Mathis will be breathing down his neck, believe you me. Uh, Tom Compton, again, competing with uh, Billy Turner, who's their other signing. Uh, they're both going to be competing for the starting right tackle job. Alex Singleton is very similar to Josie Jewell, to be quite honest. Like, they're both really good against the run, especially in between the tackle, or really anything kind of in between the numbers. They can just kind of, here is my box, this is my area that I'm defending, you cannot run on me. Uh, very Zach Cunningham-ish, if we're trying to talk about the overall archetype here. Different body types, but overall archetype. Alex Singleton is that kind of guy where it's like, yeah, he's going to get a million tackles. Not the most reliable, I would say, in coverage, especially if you want to run man coverage. So I'd be curious to see if he's going to play next to Jewel or be Jewel's backup. That's probably a question that will be solved in training camp, which, by the way, we're recording this like the first day of training camp. It's not even going to go live till two weeks into camp. For all we know, some of these guys that we've talked about are going to get hurt in this episode. We're going to have to redo, (laughs) but we'll see. I'd say follow Uh, the money on Singleton. Josie Jewell's making 5.5. Singleton's making 1.1. He's that probably was my general assumption. He's probably but, Jewell's backup. But at the same time, I mean, you know, Philly's paying because you're white like $3 million and he's going to start for them. So I don't, I don't know. You never know. You never know. Please don't um, tell me you just compared Alex Singleton and Kazir White. They're I'll very different. To, I get it. I I'll get have it. to throw hands over like <laughs> a thousand miles. That's not going to work. But uh, the uh, obviously the crown jewel of this free agency class was Randy Gregory, um, you know, almost 14 million. 
he was pretty much signed, sealed, and delivered to Dallas, and then the salary forfeiture language popped up, and Randy decided he didn't like that and went to Denver instead. So that was very fortunate for the Broncos. I don't know where they would have spent that money if they didn't get Randy. I'm sure they had other ideas in mind, but I, I again, you're putting an edge duo of Nick Chubb and Randy Gregory out there for, to be honest, less money than I expected Randy to get. Everything else is gravy at this point. He's cheaper than I expected. He's more productive than virtually anybody else they could have gotten Mm -hmm. in free agency. They addressed that need before the draft, so they didn't have to reach on anybody in this edge class, especially when they gave up high round picks for Russell. So it's not like they had a whole lot of high value draft assets to use. This was the perfect signing for them. Took care of a need, was expensive, but not, not as much as you expected. And in a year where we're expecting them to go all in, who cares what it's going to cost in the future? You know, if it's $28 million guaranteed and he's going to be on the team for at least three years, I don't give a shit. Like, as long as he's good this year and we're getting a ring, he could be awful the remainder of the contract. He won't be, but he could be awful the remainder of the contract, and I will not care because this is the move they had to do right now. Get a pass rusher, let Russell build a lead, and then get guys that can go hunt. Make it not just be the Nick Chubb or John Cooper show. Have three or four good pass rushers, not just two. Again, great move for them. Was exactly the move they needed to make. And uh, overall, again, George Payton crushed this offseason. And we're not even at the draft yet. No, it forces opposing offenses to do a certain thing, which is we can't load up and shift to take care of Chubb. Chubb has proved himself as a very good not necessarily, I'd say elite, but right outside that conversation, pass rusher who you need to account for in a game plan. If you don't, he's going to make you pay. But when a team only has one of those, uh, I'll use Chicago as an example, in the early Khalil Mack years, like it basically sets up offenses to have to play what I would call honest. And offenses don't want to play honest. They want to <laughs> cheat to one side if they can. They're going to take every advantage they can get. This reduces that advantage significantly. Like you said, he was a better rush threat than anybody else available, and it sets the Denver defense up to be able to do what they want to do on any given down and not let the offense dictate to them instead. So, Because now they don't have to blitz. They can rush with yeah. four yes. all day long. And I don't just mean like straight rushes. Like Obviously, you can do, you know, three-man games or any sort of you can rush with four in a whole bunch of different ways but now they don't need to call a variety of fire zones to get pressure and bring five like they can call just a variety of four-man rushes instead still have seven in coverage and be okay which they couldn't necessarily do that last year they were they were decent as a four-man rush, um, but really I, I felt the stars of the show was more on the coverage aspect than the pass rush aspect. Now I think they have stars in both areas. Like they have a great secondary. They're going to be able to lock people down, but also the pass rush can get there in under three seconds. So uh, yeah, this defense is going to be just disgusting. And again, that's before we even get to the draft where they just kept loading up, especially on the interior of the defensive line where they got a whole bunch of guys we like. They got DB depth, and they got arguably the best tight end in the draft. It's a fun draft class for Denver. Uh, 
you know, obviously no number one that went in the Russell trade, but only two other picks in the first three rounds and then a whole bunch of picks from round four on down. Like the vast majority of this fairly large draft class is from round four down. So they had to hit on their top two. And I would say their top four in this draft class, for just looking at top four, and I don't care about top four rounds, I care about top four picks across the NFL. The top four picks in this draft class for me are really, really strong. And after that, it's usually gravy. They picked up a couple of other players later on down that I really like. In fact, I know one that you're definitely in love with from your pre-draft work. But let's talk about it because it brought a lot of talent into Denver. And they're going to have to continue to do this after the Russell Wilson trade with lower round picks because they traded a lot of those high picks away. So they start off in round two. Pick number 64, and they get Nick Benito, the linebacker from Oklahoma, who we talked about. Great edge, good bend, uh, needs a decent counter move as a rusher, but is so much more than that. Can go backwards with running backs, can go all the way to the boundary with tight ends on little flare routes. A little bit of Leonard Floyd in his game, and in that he's very versatile, um, very rangy. He's not as long as Leonard Floyd, but... A lot of different things you could do with Nick Bonetto, and I think that's probably what attracted Denver to bringing him into the fold. Round three, pick 80. They go with Greg Dulcich, the tight end from UCLA, who is an absolute seam-ripping threat. In my mind, this is the tit-for-tat replacement for Noah Fant. Like, Fant Mm -hmm. is faster as an athlete, but they do a lot of the same things. And if you get Dulcich sort of on his horse down the seam, he is surprisingly quick for his size. He's very tall. He's got great range, great catch radius. But when you get him on his horse, there are a couple, more than a couple of reps on tape where I was like, whoa, when he opens up, he's he's dead fast. Again, started as a wide receiver, bulked up to a tight end. So it's not super surprising, but Dulcich is there. Fant replacement. Is he the same player as Fant? No, he's not as liquid quick as, as Fant. But is he going to be a very productive player in the pass game, especially on those longer passes down the middle that Russ can throw? Mm, probably. Round four, pick 115, Damari Mathis, the corner out of Pittsburgh, who I love because I think he could be very Kareem Jackson-like. He plays nickel mm-hmm. right now. He could eventually play safety. He doesn't need to. He is tough as nails like Damari Mathis is gonna bring it Lewis Riddick who many of you are familiar with as a commentator uh is a former Pittsburgh defensive back he loves Damari Mathis he <laughs> and I went back and forth in draft season about how good we thought Damari Mathis was going to be I thought Damari Mathis was largely underrated very skillful player very physical player and he's going to bring something to that Denver defense. So while he may not start right away, look for him to get significant reps on multiple DB defenses, nickel, dime, all that, and eventually earn that nickel starting role because I think he will. I think he's that level of player. Round four, pick 116, just one pick later. One of my favorites in the draft who I thought was terribly underrated, Ayomiya Uazurike, the defensive end from Iowa State, who is massive and really athletic he's about 6'6 6'5 6'6 I said he reminded me of a young not a polished but a young Akeem Hicks multiple times he is a bear of a player he's a big dude rangy fast super powerful I thought he was underrated at Iowa State I think 
the upside on Uzurike is massive. Might take him a couple of years to get there. I think he's a steal in the fourth round. He got an absolute shit ton of pressures too, by the way, without even really knowing what he's doing yet. He just fucking runs through people. I love that dude. Yeah, and he's he's just wilding at this point and getting away with it. Um, as he gets more technique, I'm not going to say he has no technique. That's unfair to him. He's worked hard to improve as a player. Can he continue to improve with the basically limitless sort of physical gifts that he has? Mm-hmm. This is a guy whose curve is probably not going to be immediate, but over two or three years, you're going to come back to him just like Akeem Hicks. When Akeem Hicks came out of Regina in Canada, nobody was like, oh, this is the next absolute mauler of an interior defensive lineman. They could just toy with offensive linemen. Three or four years later, that's what they were saying. So that it's a possible career path, not a guarantee. Uh, round five, pick 152. DeLaurin Turner Yell, the safety from Oklahoma. Wasn't as high on him. This one felt a little bit early. This is where the sort of Denver draft strategy and I diverge. It was the first pick that I was like, okay, all right, you like him. I mean, it's a fifth-round safety. Go ahead. But um, wasn't wasn't my favorite player in their draft class. The second pick they have in round five, number 162, Montreal Washington, a wide receiver from Samford, small school guy. We'll see. Their wide receiver core is loaded, and his path to playing time is certainly not direct. Again, I wouldn't expect anything from him early in his career. If he ends up being a practice squad player, that would seem about right. Uh, We'll see if he develops down the line. Uh, Their third pick in round five, number 171. So, again, they picked 152, 162, and 171. It was the Mm -hmm. Denver Broncos all the time in this portion of the draft. They get Luke Wattenberg, the center from Washington, who we got to see up close. I like this pick. As long as he doesn't have to be a starter, I really like this pick. He could develop into a very nice backup center, possible swing guard if he bulks up a little bit. Uh, this is where they sort of got back on track for me. And I was like, now that is a great value pick at the, you know, the end of round five in round six, pick two Oh six. This is your guy, Matt Henningsen, the defensive tackle from Wisconsin, who is a physical freak. Uh, <laughs> and they, they, they rounded out last pick in round seven, number two thirty-two. Uh, Fion Hicks, the cornerback also from Wisconsin, Matt Henningsen's teammate, physically very gifted, uh, Tactically, a little bit less gifted. Uh, special teamer probably to start. And practice squatter, likely. Again, seventh rounder. That would be a fine outcome. But overall, if you look at that top four, Benito, Dulcich, Mathis, and Uazurike, as strong as almost any top four in the league. And then they grab, you know, Wattenberg and Henningsen farther on down. I have no problem with this draft class. Really nice job by the personnel department in Denver. I am in disbelief that Matt Henningsen... <laughs> I know you are. <laughs> ...went at 206. And this is yeah. going to sound weird. It's like, Brett, Brett, what'd you think of the Broncos draft? And I immediately start with a fucking six-round pick. No. <laughs> no. He is not a six-round pick. Okay? This was a highly productive, extremely well-coached interior defensive lineman at a major college football program in one of the best defenses in the country at Wisconsin under Jim Leonard... 6'3", 290, broad of 9'11", vertical jump. Okay, vertical jump, 290 pounds, 37 and a half inches. Short shuttle, 4'2", 3 cone, 7'1", 6". You put that up against Aaron Donald, 
They're the fucking same. I'm not saying he's Aaron Donald, but athletically, that is an Aaron Donald caliber athlete. What is he doing going in the sixth round from a, a, a productive player in a great defense in a major conference with that kind of tools that everybody watched at the Shrine Bowl? Like, every team was there. And the Broncos just mosey on down to pick 206 and get in there like what the fuck is that that's not you know fair. you know what it feels like to me is that you know look it's it's the end of you know day three of the draft you're like okay we got a bunch of picks coming up they're gonna come in rapid fire succession like start looking through your list start weighing positions like the special teams coaches are in your ear like i gotta get this guy i gotta get this guy we haven't gotten one of these yet and we lost this give me this Right, and you're looking around. You got all this stuff in front of you, and you're flipping the cards through, and you're like, you're going through each position, right? This is what you do when you do mock drafts. You're like flipping through each position card, like what's left, what's left, what's left, and you're like, like two or three ticks down, you're like, wait, did did, did nobody pull <laughs> Hennings' card? Like, what is he doing here? Why is he still on the board? And everybody's like, no, boss, he's still there, and you're like, are okay. you kidding me? <laughs> Like, we're at two pick 200 out of a 250-ish, you know, 260-ish pick draft, and he's still on the board. You're telling me this guy is still available? And everybody's like, yeah. Like, well, get this card in. What are you doing? Like, They didn't even really need him at that point, too, because before that pick, no. their rotation was Draymond Jones, DJ Jones, Deshaun Williams, Uwazarike, Purcell, McTelvin Aguim. They didn't need him, no. but he was there. So they're like, whatever. If you're going to give it to us, fine. Yeah, um, and honestly, even though he's 290, you could play him on special teams because he's that kind of athlete. Can you imagine yeah. him on special teams? Ah. Just turning somebody into a fine pink mist. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's a terribly scary thought, but great draft top to bottom for Denver. They reload the coffers, including special teams. They get a n bunch of nice backups, bunch of players that are going to move into being starters pretty quickly, in my opinion, and then a sort of very, I think, specialized weapon in Dulcich who's going to be a red zone nightmare because he's so long and tall and a gifted receiver, but is also between the 20s going to have some field stretching moments, even as a rookie. When he gets loose and somebody singles him up with a safety who's 5'10 and <laughs> runs like a 4'5", you're done. He's going to destroy them. Wilson will hit him with a moon ball and he will go. He went in a bunch of those routes in college. You will see it. Not a ton of times. He's not, I'm not saying get him on your fantasy team and he's going to take you to the championship. It's not that kind of thing. He will have a couple of highlight plays with Russell Wilson throwing the ball where people single him up because there's just too many other people on that offense. And they go, well, leave the rookie one-on-one. -on -one. Somebody's going to find out. They're going to, they're going to ground and find out and it's not going to be pretty. They got my number one tight end. They got, in terms of like hybrid safety nickel archetypes, one of my three to four favorites of that archetype in this class. Even though Damari can play outside corner, I would prefer him as a hybrid safety nickel-ish type guy. One of the top three to four of those in this class. One of the most ultra-productive high upside five techniques. And then one of the, I don't even care what position he plays, just get him on the field in Matt Henningsen all in the same rookie class after trading for a Hall of Fame quarterback. Well done. Golf claps yes, for you, golf, golf claps. Great job, George and Kelly. Nicely nicely done. But I, I would not be at all surprised. I, I think we would not be at all surprised if two years from now, three years from now, that interior three rotation is Henningsen on one side, Nuizirike on the other side, and whoever they want to put it, true nose. 
DJ uh, Jones probably. Sure, uh, if he's still yeah. there. Like, you know, I don't think either of us would bat an eye. We'd be like, yep, we, we saw that as, you know, their ideal roles, and here they are, and they got them for a combination of a fourth and a sixth. And so. a measly $10 million in the current market. Yeah, which that's, that's what good... That's what good GMs do. That's what good personnel departments do. Is you don't, like you said, don't need him. Pick him anyways. He's a talented player. We'll we'll find a role for him. We'll work him in, and we won't be held over barrel in contract negotiations because we'll have very good depth. Now, I will say, uh, UDFA. This section is all yours because I think for the first time, uh, I didn't watch <laughs> any of these dudes. It's all you. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's interesting, and um, this one's got a special shout out because. Uh, usually it's you saying, well, I, I know a coach or I, I know a guy that works for a team or whatever else. This time, it's this guy. I know a guy that works for a <laughs> EJ's team. EJ's name dropping today? Is that what we're doing? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. So I know one of the coaches, and therefore, because it's a very small program, also a recruiting cog. I'm not going to say he's a recruiting coordinator because I don't think he is, but the, everybody recruits at those programs because they're so small and they've got to spread out. So, uh, Sebastian Gutierrez, the offensive tackle from Minot State in North Dakota. Uh, I know the tight ends coach for Minot State, uh, Dandy Young. Uh, met him at Bears camp. He's he's followed and covered the Bears for a long time, but he's he's decided to get into coaching. Did so a couple of years ago. Got a position at Minot State, and so I reached out to him because I was like, "Holy crap! One of your guys got you know one of your guys got an invite. This is awesome. What are you thinking?" He's he likes. Gutierrez a lot. He knows he's going to be fighting for a practice squad spot, but uh, shout out to Dan. Uh, keep doing what you're doing up there in North Dakota, and um, let's hope Gutierrez sticks at least on the practice squad, because that would be fun. Uh, Christopher Allen, you probably did watch. He was an edge at Alabama. Some off-field oh, issues. Oh, okay. There. I lied. I did watch. Yep. Okay, so I watched yep. one. <laughs> exactly. You watched one. So yeah. Christopher Allen was somebody that probably wasn't going to get drafted because of his off-field issues, sort of on again, off again at Alabama, even in yeah. Nick Saban's program. Uh, but the Broncos are more than willing to take a chance as a UDFA. That's when you do it and say, hey, if you're super talented, uh, we'll figure it out. And then uh, Kadofi Wright, linebacker from Buffalo, I legit like. I thought he should have been drafted. It seems like Buffalo produces a guy or several guys every year. Kadofi Wright was the guy this year that was on a lot of watch lists as a guy that was probably going to be drafted in the later rounds, but was talented enough to play in the NFL. I, again, with this linebacker lineup, like I like his chances to at least stay on the practice squad sort of scout team, if not eventually make the 53 with a couple of injuries. I know they like their inside linebackers, but he sort of slots right into that type. He was hyper productive in that defense. He was the key that they funneled everything to in the Buffalo defense. So, um, you know, not they had a decent class. We threw up the graphic with everybody on there. We're only talking about really three of them, but, you know, that's all that really matters. And it might not be these three that stick. If you get three UDFAs that stick or, you know, make a significant contribution on your team, that's a really good pull. And um, don't be don't be fooled by Dylan Parham. It's not that Dylan Parham. <laughs> the tight yeah. end from North Carolina State. It's not the, not the guard from Memphis you're thinking of. Uh, but, you know, again, That did make me do pulls. a double take, not going to lie. <laughs> I, no, I checked it. I was like, wait, is that a typo? Uh, no. Also a Dylan Parr. But, uh, you know, again, might not be the three that we highlighted. I like their chances. Uh, they certainly have a lot of skills, but 
again, coaching staffs. At this point, it's a lot about relationships, relationships with either players or agents, universities. Um, there's a lot of reasons that people end up choosing a UDFA destination, and all of those things can help or hurt their chances to work out. We'll see what happens. Christopher Allen, by the way, uh, another edge that is 242 pounds or less. Oh, he fits their type. They like, have a type. In terms of his physical skills and the way he played, he absolutely slots into a role. It's whether or not they can keep him focused on the field. And if they can, he's a very talented player. He was doing what he did in the SEC for Nick Saban. Like, that's, you know, it's pretty good bona fides to start I, with. Did you watch any of it? Because I think he got hurt pretty early in 2020. When I watched it, it was the 2020 stuff because I watched him the year prior. Yeah, But he ended be. up not coming out. I didn't watch any of his 2021, but 2020, I thought it was good tape. Yeah, exactly. Pretty decent tape in the SEC against some high-quality opponents. You're like, yeah, I'll take a shot on that in UDFA for sure. Yeah. Uh, all right, team floor, team ceiling, final segment. This is this is the biggie. And mm-hmm. it's also a rather wide range. I have the same range that I gave to Cincy and Buffalo, which – Sounds crazy, but even in the AFC West, I think it's totally possible because this roster is so ready to go and because they just injected a much better quarterback situation into it. Their ceiling, and I'm talking if everything goes right, is 13 wins, just like Cincy, just like Buffalo. I think their chances of getting to that is less than those two teams because of the division they're in. But hey, anything's possible. They were giving these juggernauts in the AFC West problems even last year before they improved their offense, let alone now. Their floor, not that Russell ever gets hurt. He never gets hurt. But if, you know, they're sustaining injuries on the offensive line and Cortland somehow goes down again and Tim Patrick goes down again and then you've got Jerry Judy versus the world and, you know, Maybe Alberto goes down. You got a rookie starting tight end, and Javante. Like again, there's a whole bunch of scenarios where, because of freak injuries, things can fall apart, and because the AFC West is so crazy, you can fall behind in that division pretty quick. Their floor to me is nine, and that's if everything goes bad. So, it's a very high floor, an exceptionally high ceiling. They will be in the running for the first seed in the conference. I can tell you that right now. Whether or not they get it is tough to say because I could say that the entire division is in the running for the first seed, but I'm not going to discount them just because of, of who they play against because they're capable of beating everybody they play against. And I, I truly believe that this team is is potentially going to be just like Indy. We talked about it before, the last two Super Bowl winners. Tom Brady semi-disgruntled veteran quarterback that's going to the Hall of Fame goes down to to Tampa, which is a more ready-made roster than what he had in New England, immediately wins a Super Bowl. Matt Stafford was trying to carry a franchise that didn't have a good roster for a long time. They traded him away to a ready-to-go roster that wanted to upgrade a quarterback, immediately wins a Super Bowl. That's a formula that has a lot of recent success, and I think Russell could very easily, again, just like Matt Ryan with Indy, be in that same formula. So I'm not going to discount them having a 13-win ceiling because this team is that potentially good and they do have that much talent and that much ability to dominate virtually everybody they play against they can 
it'll be really interesting to see if they do. So my ceiling, I wasn't willing to stretch it up as high because of the division they play in. So just for the reason you said, I'm not going to discount them. I'm not going to discount them either, but I'm also not going to say that it's likely that they get to that peak. Could they? I think they could. I think the chances are really low because if you look around, it's like, oh, well, they're going to take two from, oh, right, they're they're probably not going to take two from anybody. Uh, they're going to split probably, yeah. Maybe, yeah. right? Could they beat everybody for two? They could. Are they going to? No way in hell. Like, I could see them taking two from the Chargers, but I could also see the Chargers whooping their ass twice. You know, are they going to take two from Kansas City? They're not. Like, if Pat Mahomes is standing, they're not taking two from Kansas City. I would be shocked. Uh, will they split with the Raiders? Maybe, but then that's, you know, no wins against Kansas City, one win against the Raiders, and maybe two wins against the Chargers. But it, you know, could easily be zero wins against the Chargers because they're really talented too, and Justin Herbert's no pushover. So I'm going to go, all that being said, a ceiling of 10 wins. Now, I believe in Russell Wilson. I have seen up close for a long time what he can do and how he can elevate a team. I don't think 10 wins is a shot. I don't think 10 wins is kicking him in the ribs. 10 wins in this division could win the division because they're all going to eat each other. This is the AFC North all over again. This is four teams that kick the living crap out of each other, and 10 wins could be the top mark and earn them the first seed in the division, which would put them sweetly into the playoffs. My floor is a little bit closer. It's eight wins, only one win below your nine-win floor because there's so much talent. <laughs> Even if they do end up splitting with everybody, they're still going to beat a lot of their out-of-conference or out-of-division opponents because there's just too much talent here. It is going to take a little bit of time to mesh. That's my other sort of justification for the 10-win ceiling is they have if they had the same coaching staff and they were just importing Russell, okay. But they have a new coaching staff, again, and not just uh, – not just a new coach, a new leaning. They're going from a defensive coach to an offensive coach. It's not like just a continuation under the same system, kind of like they have on defense. They have a continuation under the same system. This is not that. They have a whole new thing. So it's going to take a little while, even with a veteran quarterback and lots of talent, veteran talent on the offense, to gel. And that could cost them a couple of games early. And a couple of games early is the difference between a 13-win ceiling and a 10- or 11-win ceiling. So I'm going to go 10 wins on the ceiling, 8 wins on the floor, narrow range, but still say that it could win the division outright. What's what's your odds, at least, of them being in the playoffs? Very good. Uh, above Above 80%? I would say at that would be about where I would put the the odds to make me really stress out about whether I wanted the over or the under, uh, seventy five to eighty percent. I Russell makes things happen if he stays healthy. He, this is as talented an offense as he has ever been with, and I think that's a I, I would fairly easy more, statement. More talented than, than yeah, no. This is like, even this going is, back to when they went to the Super Bowl, where his right. number one it was probably Doug. Doug and Lockett were the, were the best duo he ever yeah. had. Or no, I guess DK and Lockett were the best duo he ever had. But still, like, from top to bottom in terms of the entire receiving core, Cortland and Judy and Patrick. And, and the tight end and yeah. the running backs. And I know he had Marshawn, and I'm not saying anything against Marshawn. Like, Javante Williams was my RB1 last year. He more than earned it, and he's going to prove it this year. Like, he's he's incredibly talented. The tight end is good. Certainly I would say better than just about anybody that they ever had in Seattle. 
you can say Jimmy Graham, but he didn't do anything in Seattle. Like the receiving core, if you go three deep, better. Uh, the offensive line, generally better than almost anything he had in any year uh, in Seattle. So top to bottom, this is the most talented offense that Russell Wilson's ever been around. And Russell Wilson elevated all those other offenses. So I believe in his ability to do that. However, it's ridiculous that the four quarterbacks in this division, you cannot name another division in football where there's not a weak spot at quarterback. You got Justin Herbert, Mahomes, Russell, and Carr. Like, you could say a little bit less than, but all of those players are above average in the NFL. All of those players are in the top 15. I almost refuse to rank them. I mean, how 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 do you? You've got <laughs> like sure three we'll put guys. we'll put Pat at one, but the other right. three like fuck it, I don't care. They're right. all good. <laughs> You've got three quarterbacks in this division who are top ten. Yeah, well. Uh, okay, this is going to sound weird. I might go all four. You could go all four, and I would not argue with you in the slightest that Carr is tickling the top 10. But if you want to pull Carr out and put him at, you can't put him lower than like 11 or 12. 12 like, is the absolute basement. Yeah, if you're saying he's lower than 12, I'm probably not listening to your argument. But if we're just going like cleanly top 10, Pat, obviously, probably number one somewhere number one number three depends on what you what you value most in quarterbacks but he's he's in the top three or four quarterbacks in the league no matter how you rank them Mm -hmm. herbert i won't hear anything below top six like it's if you're putting herbert below top six forget it like i'm not interested russell wilson i understand the physical limitations maybe but you're going to put him outside the top 10? Really? You're going to put Russell Wilson outside the top 10? I don't think you probably should. That's a mistake. So three in the top 10 for sure. And if you want to put Carr at nine or 10, I'm not going to argue with you. I think that's, and I think there's a really sound argument for that. Again, depending on what you value, but that you have three out of four quarterbacks in the top 10 in the league in one division. And you have an argument for putting the fourth in come on it that's ridiculous and it's not like they let the rest of the teams languish around them this is not an andrew luck situation like all four of those guys have wildly talented teams and it's going to make for a really fun week and that's why again my ceiling is 13 mm-hmm. do i think they're going to get there most likely not i think you and i if they ended up at 10, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. But I, I have to put my ce- my absolute ceiling, which is, like, what is possible. It's possible. It is possible for them to be the best team in the league. <laughs> like that's yes. what we're talking it about. It could here, happen. So. Uh, but, man, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. Again, as of the time of us recording this, this is, I think, first day of Broncos camp. Um, this is when Russell arrived wearing his own jersey and <laughs> doing, his, doing his intro pressers and everything like that. So... By the time this comes out, we'll be a couple weeks in the camp. God willing, everybody's still healthy. Uh, I think this will be coming out right before their first preseason game. So, yeah, lots of hype here or there in Denver. uh, And we are continuing this train for the rest of the week because as positive as we are about the Broncos, we're going to be just as positive about the rest of the division. They're all just amazing. So tune in tomorrow because I think tomorrow's Chargers Day, right? Chargers Day. Chargers Day. And then uh, and then we got Raiders and Chiefs right after that. And then we got a macro look at the entire division where we pick our division winners 
on Friday. <laughs> so come back for that. I know that's the one I, 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 I might not be able to decide until oh, like right man. before that show. But uh, we're going to be doing that for the rest of the week. So, uh, yeah, see you back here tomorrow. Same time, same place. And until then, later. Take care. Take care.